Someone has rightly put it, the law reveals how dirty the room is. It's not the broom that sweeps it clean. It's by grace that we are saved through faith and not of ourselves. Next on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed points us to a better covenant through a study of Hebrews chapter 8. This is amazing grace. Hi there, and again, welcome to Abounding Grace. As we dive back into our study of Hebrews, Pastor Ed Taylor will have us consider some aspects of the new covenant and show us why it's so much superior to the old covenant. Those that try to live under the old covenant rules quickly discover it can't be done. It can't fix our problem because we are sinful people. So where does that leave us? Christ changed everything and solved the problem. Hebrews chapter 8 and Romans chapter 8 is before us. And let's find our place there now as we go to Pastor Ed. The title of our Bible study today is God's Will Written on Your Heart. God's Will Written on Your Heart. Why is Jesus better than Judaism? Why is he better than the Old Testament law? Why is he better than the rituals and the ceremonies and the religious system? Well, he's better or he's the best because he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He brought in the new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. And now by faith, we live in unity with Jesus, fulfilling God's righteous requirements in him. Remember, we've had this repeated over and over again. If anyone ever comes and tries to trip you up by saying, you don't keep the law, you don't worship properly, you can answer that say, no, I do keep the law. And I do, keep, I do worship properly. And they might say to you, well, you don't keep the feast. And you say, well, yes, I do keep the feast. And yes, I do keep the Ten Commandments. And yes, I do keep the law. And they say, no, that's not possible. You have failed, to which you will say, yes, I have failed. And they will tell you, but you've sinned. You can't completely keep it, to which you will say, you're right, I've sinned. And then there'll be a little bit of frustration because, well, you don't keep the law. And you will answer this way, I do keep the law. By faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work. He is my mediator. He is my representative. It's his righteousness for my unrighteousness. It's his perfection for my imperfection. So that no longer do I try to keep a list of rules and regulations. No longer do we need to sacrifice animals. No longer do we go through all the ceremonies or the priesthood. But now by faith in Jesus Christ, you keep the law. Don't forget that. He is your sufficiency. He's your strength. Don't let anyone trip you up with that as if Jesus isn't enough for you, as if you're not worshiping properly, as if the church that you attend isn't doing it right because you've abandoned your Jewish roots. You have not abandoned your Jewish roots. You've embraced them completely, wholeheartedly, 100% by faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And by faith in him, you and I are fulfilling what the Bible has taught and predicted. Now, throughout the Bible, it's important that we recognize that God has made various covenants or agreements with man. A covenant, we don't use that word very much, but a covenant simply means an agreement. 
It's an agreement between two parties. You know, if you sign a contract, there's a covenant. If you shake a hand and make an agreement, that's a covenant. <laughs> One thing they didn't tell me about moving to Colorado is that when you buy a house, most likely when you drive into the neighborhood, it's going to say the name of your neighborhood there, and then on the bottom it's going to say what? A covenant community. Why didn't anybody tell me that? What that meant? Because basically a covenant community means that you need to keep all the rules of the people that walk around with the clipboards. <laughs> the clipboards, covenant. Somewhere when you signed your documents, when you bought a house, somewhere in those million documents, there was one that said, I agree to keep all the rules of those that carry clipboards. It's a covenant controlled community. We, you know, Marie and I, we don't check the mail that often. So when we do, it usually comes in a stack on the kitchen table. And then everybody goes through and it gets all strewn. So I'm going through it. It was my turn to go through it. And there it was. I stopped on the envelope. We got a letter from our association. And so I grabbed it. Nobody opened it yet. And I looked to Marie, didn't even have a second thought. And I said, guess what, babe? We got a ticket. We got a ticket. So I'm opening up. Who knows what it might be? It could be the fence that's broken. It could be the Christmas tree that's still in our backyard. <laughs> As I'm opening up, flipping it open, taking it out, you know, we didn't get a ticket. It wasn't a ticket. I wish it was a ticket. You know what it was? A bill. That's part of the agreement. You pay us, we tell you what to do. That's it. So covenants, we don't use that word very much, but it is an agreement. And there's a little bit of disagreement on this from Bible scholars, but no need. I found the seven most important covenants in the Bible, if you want to jot them down. We're not going to look at them in depth, but if you want to look at them later, you can. But seven progressive agreements that God made with man from the very beginning. Number one, Genesis chapter three is the Adamic covenant, the agreement that God made with Adam. Then... Number two, Genesis chapter 8 and 9, the Noah, Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah. Thirdly, is the Abrahamic covenant. That's the agreement that God made with who? Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 and following. Then number four is the Mosaic covenant, God's agreement with Moses, Exodus chapter 20 and others. Then there is number five, the Davidic covenant, and that's the agreement that God made with David. Then there's one, there's a general understanding. It's known, number six, as the land of Israel covenant. And that is God's agreement of what the boundaries would be of the promised land, which, by the way, are far bigger than what currently exists today. And then the final one, number seven, is what's known as the new covenant. And that's God's agreement with man through Jesus Christ. So that as we read here in Hebrews chapter eight today, finishing off the chapter, two covenants are mentioned. The old covenant and the new covenant and the Old Covenant is referring to the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with, Matt, with Moses in developing the religious system of the nation of Israel, the priests, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, all of that, the Old Covenant, which has a definite beginning and a definite ending, and then the New Covenant that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 22. Remember when he was, and it's really good that we had a communion today together as a church family where Jesus took the cup and said, take and drink. This is the New Covenant. So the New Covenant is referring to life in Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant in Hebrews is the Mosaic Covenant. Pick up with me in verse 7 now where it speaks of if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says... Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Let's pause there for a second 
to establish the reality that the old covenant was necessary and important. Remember we learned last time that just because we use the word better doesn't mean the other is worse, but rather we have this instruction of God, of the progressive revelation of God, that the new covenant is better in every way, but the old covenant served a purpose. And the old covenant was good, holy, and just. And as we'll see in a moment, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has ended and has become obsolete and has been replaced by the new covenant, but it hasn't gone away yet. You'll see that at the, at the end. Because the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was good and is good for its purpose, and that is to reveal our need for a savior. But notice he says, if the first, first covenant had been faultless, like if it had, what was the fault of the first covenant? Here's the fault. It was unable to change a person. It was unable to give a person the power to make the needed changes that it revealed. Remember, we have the same illustration. We'll repeat it over and over again. But like the mirror, it only reveals, has no power to change. Well, the Mosaic law is a mirror in our behavior. And it reveals our failures. And it reveals our need for a savior and our need for forgiveness. But in and of itself, it has no power to change. And that was its fault. But it was holy, just, and good. Now, verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the Mosaic covenant served a purpose. And most of this section of Hebrews is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah, the prophet, as he's prophesying, speaks on behalf of God of a day when a new covenant will come. And the new covenant, notice, will be a change of mind, a change of heart. It will be internal, and it will replace the old covenant. It will be the covenant God deals with his people when, once the new comes. And he says in verse 10, I'm going to put my laws in, the, in, in their mind. I'm going, to put, I'm going to be in their mind, and I'm going to write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, I want to show you something. Come back to Romans chapter 8 now. Romans is often referred to as the gospel of grace. And you know, when we studied Romans a few years ago, it took us over three years to finish the book as we slowly grew in our understanding of the grace of God. And there's a verse here in verse 2 of chapter 8 that pretty much summarizes the entire book of Hebrews, but specifically speaks to where we are today. Notice in verse 2 where it says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now he's basically saying the same thing using different words. This law of the spirit of life in Christ, what does that refer to but the new covenant, the new covenant of grace? 
Whereas the law of sin and death is reflective of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. You see, all the agreements that God made with man prior to the new covenant were dependent upon your success, your performance. Basically, the covenants would say this, if you do this, then you'll live. So you'd feel really good if you did it. If you followed through and obeyed God, life would be imparted to you. But the flip side of the old covenant was, if you do this, you'll live. The other side is, if you don't do this, you will die. Someone had to die in order to appease the wrath of God. In the old system, remember, the old system of worship, when the temple was still standing, animals were sacrificed. And on the Day of Atonement, three animals were sacrificed. Remember, the priest would offer one for himself. He would offer one for the people. And there'd be that one that didn't get offered, but rather the priest with his bloody hands would place blood upon his forehead and he would have the goat run away as fast as he could. And that way, that would represent that God would remember our sins no more as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins for us. And every time an animal was sacrificed would be a reminder of the failure of man. And they would do that year after year on the day of atonement. However, now this new law of the spirit of life in Christ, this new covenant gives us freedom from the old. It gives us freedom. We're no longer under the bondage of the law of sin and death. So what is this law of the spirit of life in Christ? Well, it's really just one word, the gospel. The law of the spirit of life in Christ is the gospel, the good news that your sins can be forgiven, that they will be wiped away, that you become a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The new covenant is different because it is not predicated on your success and your works and your constant reminder of your sin. No, no, no. The new covenant is predicated on the finished work, just one, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross that he took. He's the one. When you think, well, wait a minute, Ed, what happens when I fail today? Jesus took your sins, your sins upon himself in his death. Now that his death actually covers you once and for all. He's offered once and for all. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that takes them away. We know that the law hasn't been done away with. We know that the Mosaic covenant still exists for, for the purpose of pointing us to Christ. It's no longer the way that God relates to man. We are now under this new law, the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. So what is the spirit of the law of sin and death? Well, some people refer to it as the old covenant. Some people refer to it as the Torah. Some people refer to it as maybe as the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic covenant. But in general, it is what God required before Christ. And it's been taken away. It's no longer binding by faith in Jesus. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Jot it down. It says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all, his all your trespasses, having wiped out, listen, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Remember, if you ever doubt the love of God, 
you ever wonder about God's love for you in particular or for this upside down world that we live in, we need to get back to the cross because it's on the cross where God declares for everyone forever that he loves you and that the full sacrifice, all the penalty and weight, all the wrath of God toward your sin and mine was poured upon Jesus Christ. He took it all, everything for you and for me. It was his righteousness for our unrighteousness. It was his perfection for our imperfection. And it's true as we open up the Bible, I mean, you even come in to this building today set to worship. You turn your radio on, you watch online, and you're set to worship God. It's very difficult as we turn our hearts and attention toward God not to be reminded of our own failures. That even as I come and walk into the pulpit, I come into the pulpit as an imperfect man, not a perfect man. I come into the pulpit recognizing my need for Jesus in a greater way, not a lesser way. And that's one of the difficulties because when I see my own inabilities and my insufficiencies, I can then choose to try to work really hard to make up for my deficiencies and work really hard and do more. And somehow that will make me feel better. But God doesn't accept that. He reveals our weaknesses and our inadequacies so we will humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that he is our sufficiency, that it's all him, that our new relationship with God is predicated upon his promises, that he promised to put his word in our minds and put his word on our hearts. You see, all the law does is remind us that we're sinners and that we must surely die. All the law tells us is do this and live, do this and live, do this and live. But it also says, if you don't do this, you'll die. Remember that law, it, it, the Bible says it's our tutor or our schoolmaster, our teacher, and it constantly teaches us that we are in need of a great savior. The old covenant was based upon your success, your obedience, your keeping of rules and regulations, but that's the problem. We can't keep it. And Jeremiah, when he writes here in Jeremiah 31 and is quoted here in Hebrews, reminds us that there was coming a day when God is going to do the work. And that day arrived. And they have embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior and yet are so greatly tempted to leave the simplicity of the gospel and go backwards. And how many times have you been tempted to leave the simplicity of the gospel and go somewhere else? Oh, it may not be directly toward Judaism, but from where you came from, maybe back to the world or to some juicy new doctrine. You know, the Bible warns us, Paul does in another place. He says, you know, there's coming a day when men and women won't endure sound doctrine. There's coming a day where, you know, there's just going to be this sense. He describes it as people, believers will have itching ears. You know, sometimes when you read that, you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, other people will have itching ears. Please don't ever read that ever again thinking it's talking about someone else. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. That life will become so routine in many ways. That, that, that even our worship of God has such a temptation to become so routine that we'll, our ears will start itching for something new, something fresh. I mean, you think about it in the context of even this church, your church family where for the last almost 20 years, we have basically done the same thing every time we've gathered. 
We've come together, we've sung together, we study the Bible together, and then we head off into the world to make a difference. And, and you have, for some of you, you have been here from the beginning, so you've been here a long time, and, and maybe along the way you've just wondered, I wonder, you know, let's go to church this week, and we yeah, have, but you know what, it's just going to be Ed, and he's going to share his old dumb jokes, and you know, I didn't listen, laugh at the first time, and you know, he's going to use the same illustrations, and you know, maybe there's something new out there. Well, well, there always is something new out there, but that's not the real question. The real question is, where does God want you to grow in his grace and knowledge? That's the real question. But you can get an itching ear. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know, because you got to ask, if you do ask that question, you go, well, you know what, Ed, uh, if I come next week, if I come next year, if the Lord tarries, what, you, what will you be doing? I will be doing the exact same thing I'm doing right now. Whether one person shows up or a thousand people show up, it makes no difference to me. I will fulfill the call of God on my life to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, yielding myself to the best of my ability, exercising the gift of pastor teacher, working our way through the Bible so that God can use the Bible in your life by the Holy Spirit to change you. That will happen every week, week after week, month after month, year after year. And you know what? I'm not going to have any new jokes. I'm horrible at it, but I'll tell you this, just a little word. If I get one, even a slight laugh, even if I hear a baby burp at one of my jokes, I will keep trying. I will keep trying so that we can be relatable. But do you know that my jokes don't save anyone, or my illustrations don't save anyone, that they might help keep you together, give you an illustration where you can grasp it. For example, let me give you an illustration when it comes to the old and new covenant. When we think of the old covenant, you know, if we were to go down to the airport, which I did a couple days ago, I dropped my daughter off at the airport. If I go down to the airport and we went into the terminal and we started looking through the windows, one thing that we'd see a lot of is airplanes. We would see a lot of airplanes there on the, on the ground. A lot of them are boarding people and boarding passengers. And as they're there, their wheels are on the ground and the planes are there and they are, their wheels are on the ground because of a natural law, the law of gravity. And the reason they're not in the air is because they are now bound by the law of gravity, which makes sense. And, and it's important that the law of gravity take place so that the planes can be there, so that people can board, so the pilots and the flight attendants can get on and get everything ready. But there comes that moment, doesn't there, where the same plane that's held right now by the law of gravity, they push it back onto the runway. You know, they kind of turn it around and they go and they get on the runway. And as they pick up speed, they begin to take off and they, the planes take flight. And immediately, they are now subject to a new law the laws of aerodynamics, the, the laws of lift and thrust. There, there's a higher law. Now, as a plane takes off into the air, subject to the laws of aerodynamics and lift and thrust, does that mean gravity doesn't exist anymore? Yes or no? Of course not. The law of gravity still exists. But the plane and the engineers and those that do such things have figured out a way to take passengers and take them up into the air, I mean, tons and tons of weight, and, and they can fly hours and hours, eventually landing once again, subjecting themselves to the law of gravity. And that happens over and over and over again. You see, there's a higher law that will release that plane and its passengers from the law of gravity. And that's the way it is with Jesus Christ. The way it is with Jesus Christ is that by faith, you and I are lifted up 
above the gravity, if you will, of the law of sin and death. Therefore, making us free to live for Jesus in his finished work, where he does the work on the inside. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. Stop by AboundingGraceRadio.com if you'd like a replay or listen to Abounding Grace through our app. Search for Calvary Church or Ed Taylor and download that today. And we also have a book we'd like to get into your hands that can help you answer common questions about Christianity and the Bible. It's 5-Minute Apologetics for Today, 365 Quick Answers to Key Questions. This will serve to help you answer questions about evolution and creation, alleged contradictions, and general accusations concerning the Bible. Answer the claims of cults and ethical issues like abortion or divorce. Again, that's 5-Minute Apologetics for Today by Ron Rhodes. Request a copy when you give a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. We're here to serve you at 877-30-GRACE. Our number again, 877-30-GRACE. Celebrating 20 years of God's faithfulness, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Come back next time when we'll return to our study of Hebrews. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora. 